Welcome to the Metal Tech Podcast, this region's leading business podcast, shining a light on technology, entrepreneurship, and the future of business in Kentucky and beyond. Our goal is to advance the ecosystem by bringing attention to the founders, changemakers, innovators, and those supporting them. Middle Tech's content can be found on your favorite podcast streaming app, social channels, and YouTube. We encourage you to follow and participate in the conversation. Let's discuss and build the future. Welcome back to the Middle Tech Podcast. You've got Evan Knowles and this time Lincoln Day on the podcast. We sat down with the founder of Victory Hemp, Chad Rosen, to talk about the hemp industry and how his company is leveraging hemp to provide the food industry with a much more sustainable, healthy ingredient. It was a really interesting conversation that I didn't know anything about, and it was great to sit there and learn from Chad about everything going on in the world that is uh, greatly shifting towards sustainable plant-based diets. Uh, And this is not just something that is, you know, a fad. This is something that is a necessity uh, due to food demand and the increase in population around the world. So at some point, it's going to be unsustainable to continue eating the way we are right now. So hip could play a big role in that. And we talked about it. Yeah, it, and it was interesting, you know, how he talked about hemp and its and its um, use for protein. There's we're going to need more sources of protein. Humans need protein to live a balanced life, and um, the way that we eat protein now is a lot of cows and animals and things like that. So hemp is actually a really good, efficient source um, of protein and a replacement for protein as we start to consume a little bit more of a plant-based diet. We also touched on and finished the conversation with how hemp will continue to develop in Kentucky, and it'll be a big part of our agricultural economy and kind of what he thinks we need to do to make it more successful. Yeah. Fun conversation. Again, I learned a lot. Uh, this is something that's growing uh, very fast, and his story of starting Victory Hemp is uh, very inspirational. You know, He uh, went through a ton of unique fund- fundraising methods and really just willed it to where it is today. Uh, It's a great, great story. So looking forward to y'all learning from him and hearing the conversation. Before we get into the conversation, let's hear from our sponsors. This episode is brought to you by our sponsor, Land Betterment. Land Betterment is doing some incredible work throughout Appalachia and Eastern Kentucky as they're taking abandoned strip mines and putting sustainable businesses in their place. These businesses not only provide a useful repurposing of the land, but they also provide great jobs to replace the mining jobs that were lost when the mine was shut down. To learn more about Land Betterment, you can listen to our interview with their founders, Mark Jensen and Kirk Taylor, on episode 97, or visit their website at landbetterment.com. We're also sponsored by Airwing Ventures. Airwing helps determined entrepreneurs seeking resources to grow with capital and connections in order to build successful companies and impactful legacies. They're all about high growth companies, high growth careers, and high growth communities. I've personally known Dan Beldy for about four years now, and I've seen the work he's been doing in the community, and we should all feel very blessed and grateful that a VC like himself is here in Kentucky. I encourage you to connect with Airwing and learn more Let's all grow this state together. You can reach out to Dan at info at airwing.vc or dan at airwing.vc. And their website is www.airwing.vc.
everybody. You've got Evan Knowles and Lincoln Day, my typical co-host, Logan Jones, not on this one. We brought in an expert to the subject that we'll be discussing today, which is ag tech and commodities and just the whole farming ecosystem. So Lincoln was brought on to our team to cover ag tech and a lot of the commercialization that's coming out of the colleges here in our state, which a lot of that is ag tech. So wanted to bring Lincoln on the team just to talk about that specifically and for interviews like this. So today we're sitting down with Chad Rosen of Victory Hemp, and we're looking forward to a conversation about uh, their whole uh, business, how they started, and where they see the future going. And Chad, thanks for joining. Yeah, glad to be here, guys. Thanks for shedding the light on uh, casting light on what we're doing at Victory. Absolutely. We're looking forward to it. So before we get into your product and what you guys are doing at Victory, let's get into your background. So tell us about you know where you're from, your education, and how you turn yourself in the hip industry. Sure, sure, sure. Yeah, so my education was kind of driven from being an only child of a, of a single mother who was a flight attendant. Um, when she couldn't find a babysitter for me, she put me in coach and all the other flight attendants would act as my babysitter. So I, I never really, uh, I, I've always kind of been open to being wherever and could find myself comfortable in, in, in a variety of different settings. And so I think that's like, you know, that's why I've always been involved in some manufacturing businesses because you have a manufacturing facility and it lets you travel around the world and sell your goods and products and services. Uh, I've always found that to be kind of the exciting part of bringing solutions to, to market and, and connecting with communities and cultures. And so I, I've worked in manufacturing most of my life, always uh, taking a really strong approach to sustainability through leveraging markets had like a furniture business where I imported furniture from Indonesia and Thailand using water hyacinth and teak and rubber wood and all sorts of other cool materials that were renewable. I worked for uh, a manufacturer of countertops that used uh, recycled glass from last night's party, which was super cool. We were based out in the Bay Area of San Francisco. We re revitalized Henry Ford's Model A Ford factory, and then we sold uh, the business to a big natural stone manufacturer, North America's largest natural stone manufacturer. Uh, and I just had a, a kind of a broad approach to manufacturing. And when I saw uh, industrial hemp charging through Congress in 2014, uh, led by our, our Senator uh, Mitch McConnell and flanked by Rand Paul and some of the other uh, representatives here in the state, uh, I started to learn a lot more about industrial hemp and got really excited about the fact that it might actually come to fruition uh, as being a tool in the belt of farmers in uh, rural America to bring another cash crop into the rotation. And diversity is a hallmark of healthy soils and healthy farming communities. And I think that was what really catalyzed me to to get involved. So I moved from a little town in Southern California to a thriving metropolis called Newcastle, Kentucky with five Baptist churches and, and 800 people and one blinking stoplight to figure out how we were going to get hemp into the rotation. And uh, I was met with some enthusiasm of the farmers who were looking for a replacement to the tobacco diaspora and had heard a lot about hemp and had saw their uh, political leaders going to bat for them in Washington. And they had a, a great commissioner of agriculture at the time, Jamie Comer, who was driving the initiative for those constituents who said, hey, my granddaddy used to grow this crop. I know, you know, we know a little bit about it. Why can't we grow it? It doesn't get you high. It can be used for all the different things that we know it can be used for. So let's give it a shot. Uh, and I just, I, I fell in love with the the opportunity to to introduce a new commodity crop into the rotation to kind of hedge against the, the cyclical volatility that we find 
a lot of farmers faced with when, when they're growing uh, just that two crop rotation. Of course, everyone's kind of enjoying it right now. <laughs> yeah. So I'm curious, before we get deep into the hemp conversation, uh, where did your interest and want, want to execute within the sustainability space come from? Was it part of the culture you grew up around? Was it something that scared you about the future? Where, where did that sustainability bug come from? Yeah, I think it's all that. I mean, the a, a lot of it was just having traveled a lot and seeing how flat, hot, and crowded the planet was getting and, and being in Southern California and watching it grow and grow and grow and, and just seeing such a, a, a rapid evolution of the landscape from empty lots that we used to play in to lots that were covered in McMansions all over the place. And every single one of these uh, little McMansions is a hungry resource. And then you travel around the world and you realize that there's billions of people that are coming out of poverty as uh, the world index of poverty continues to decrease every year. And you know that there's more and more resources that we're going to need. And then you start to overlay that with some of the population growth that we're projecting where we expect there to be at least 3 billion more bellies on planet earth by um, 2050. There's 7 billion right now for a total of 10 billion people. And that's just a lot of resources. Uh, and you know, it's, it's a little bit of how do we manage it sustainably? So yeah, a little bit of the fear factor. I don't like to think that I'm a, I'm a fear monger, but I'm certainly a concerned citizen and I, I, I wanted to participate in, you know, some sort of solution to the problem that was just clear and present. I don't think, you know, for me, it wasn't like there wasn't any debate over whether we had to figure out how to consume resources more sustainably or not. It was just really, how do we do it? And of course, there's going to be an economic um, opportunity at the end of it. I'm glad to see that, you know, there's every single major corporation and our community of concerned citizens around the world are have a really loud voice right now. So there's a lot of people thinking in this dimension um, and, and working towards, you know, totally different solutions because there's a lot of solutions to you know, this this existential problem that we've all kind of created. And so when before we jumped on, you were kind of talking about right now, October 19th, one of the biggest issues is commodity prices. And you've kind of found yourself in a an already tough enough uh, industry as it is dealing with farmers and the supply chain procurement, things like that. Talk a little bit of, about the sustainability initiative like Certified B Corp or Cradle to Cradle. And you're actually introducing an even tougher part of the business by being able to certify yourself as that. Why is that important? And how can other companies, similar like App Harvest or, or Victory Hemp, maybe look into doing that and being certified? Right. Yeah, I think um, I think certifications are great for a number of reasons. The the busy consumer uh, is 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 just bombarded with claims by product manufacturers. Pick my product; it's the best. Pick my product; it's what you want. Pick my product; it's going to do X, Y, and Z for you. But at the end of the day, there that all those claims can really kind of be supported with a third with third party validation and verification, which comes through a certification. And so it's really critical for whatever the certification arm is to to be really uh, clear about what they are, what they stand for, and and communicate something to consumers so that you can align and you can share your message. We look at certifications as something that are that is inherent to how we operate. We align with the philosophies of the of public benefit corporations. I myself felt so strongly about the importance of public benefit corporations to communicate to all of our stakeholders what we do and what's important to us that um, I, I testified on Senate Bill 50 in, in 2018 to, to get public benefit corporations recognized in the Commonwealth state of Kentucky, which 
we can now register as a public benefit corporation, which was, I was really thrilled to be a part of that. And for, for us, it's something that I think our, our customers understand, our, um, our investors understand, perhaps our supply chain understands, but really it's also a great way to attract talent. Uh, one of the most important things when you're building a team is making sure that you have uh, a culture. And what is a public benefit corporation opens up that conversation to, well, what do you stand for? What is What are the, the pillars of your business model and why does it matter? So I, I think that, you know, for a founder like me who's trying to have an impact and do really well, by doing really good, there's two layers to the public benefit corporation. One is the outward communication of, hey, this is what we are and what we stand for, and we want to attract like-minded folks. And then the second one is it just gives me, as the operating director, a lot of protection from any kind of litigation associated with not following the Milton Friedman model of business, which is increase shareholder value at all costs. And that can be a little bit of a sticky widget when our mission is to have an impact on our community. And so if our mission is to have an impact on our community and buying hemp seeds from farmers in our hundred mile radius is one of the quotients that we want to deliver an outcome on, but we could buy hemp seed from a foreign country at a 50% discount and we opt to support our local farmers, you might have some activist shareholders say, well, you're not returning the most value for my shares. And so when you form a public benefit corporation, you can write some of those mission aligned initiatives into your operating agreement or your charter and give yourself some protection from, um, and, and just make sure everyone's in line. If you put it in writing and people understand that and you speak to it from the beginning, I think that's a really powerful message. And then having a third party kind of validate those things and give you a framework for what within which to build your business and frame out that structure is, is, is hyper valuable. So we can all be on the same page. Yeah. Love that. Let's transition here to the, to the business itself. So uh, on your website, you describe it as, you know, one mighty seed that has a lot of amazing use cases that can transform, you know, businesses across different industries. Talk about, you know, what, what, what is victory hemp and what do you guys build it? So the hemp seed is essentially been under the potato basket for the last 80 years, right? It's this seed that has, it's this plant that has been vilified and exterminated and embraced by cultures around the world. It was actually really just made illegal in the last 80 years. But before that, humidity had a tremendous relationship with cannabis. Canvas comes from the word cannabis, right? We used hemp canvas to power our sailboats around the world. We used it to clothe and, and feed ourselves in China. They've continuously eaten it in communities where people live to well over 100 years old. Um, it's got medicinal benefits, of course, but it also has an enormous amount of industrial applications. And I think for us, we saw this opportunity and, and, and we seen what other countries had done with it and we'd seen the products that have been made from it and we understood the value of agricultural products in the economy and we looked at that in terms of the lens of all the things you could do and we said how can we add value to hemp in a way that's going to access more markets and make it more accessible for consumers so that we can leverage the power of the market to create the outcome that we want on the supply chain, which is to expand acreage and scale acreage across the world uh, and, and, and do it in a way that has a benefit for soil and the communities of our farmers that are growing the crop for us, right? So that's that's kind of the idea is, is we saw hemp as just a, an amazing tool to accomplish an outcome of results. 
that were related to environmental impact and, and, and socioeconomic impact. Okay, so what's so special about this hemp seed or, or what's not special about the hemp seed? Well, the problem with the hemp seed, because it's been under the potato basket for the last 80 years, is it hasn't been subject of research and development by all the research institutions around I should say in the United States, particularly Canada has been doing some work. They've been done, doing a lot of uh, work in Italy, but one of the hallmarks of hemp seeds is that it has an amazing nutritional profile, right? It's got all nine essential amino acids. It's got a ton of L-arginine. It's got essential fatty acid. It has all these juicy bits that are really important for us to live uh, uh, a healthy, long life and have access to nutrient dense foods. The problem is that it tastes really bad in its current format of hemp protein powder, right? Hemp protein powder and hemp oil are made by this process whereby the shell is ground up into the protein powder and it's nearly impossible to remove that shell downstream. And the problem with the shell is it's got tannins and polyphenols and chlorophyll, all of which get really bitter and create off notes. It tastes kind of like grassy and it, it has it has a really chalky kind of texture to it. And so it doesn't work well as an ingredient. And so what Victory did was we looked at that problem. We said, we know that it tastes good in the hemp heart version because you know we sell a lot of those hemp hearts and people love sprinkle them on their salads. We know that hemp hearts aren't going to have much traction in the market because Americans just can't sprinkle that many hemp hearts on their salads. Like it's, it's just not any kind of scalable business model, but we know the protein has a lot of value in it and they taste really good. So we tried to figure out what we did was we said, how do we make the protein taste better? And we determined that the way to make it better was to make it from the hearts, make it from the germ of the seed. And you'd say like, well, yeah, that's pretty obvious. Why didn't anyone, why didn't everyone else do it? And I think the reason is because it's really hard. It's really, really hard. We spent 36 months in the labs on Benchtop trying to figure out how to develop a scalable process. You can't just throw it in an expeller press like you do any of the other oil seeds. You can't, well, you can subject it to hexane or another uh, hydrocarbon and fractionate the oil with a polar solvent. But those are kind of like just opposite of what consumers want. They want healthy foods. They don't want their food ingredients dipped in petroleum-based chemicals to, to separate the oil and the protein. So we had a really, really long R&D process to figure out how to do that. And the result of that is this amazing protein. So it's like, what an adventure it was, like going through this process of like, I hope it's going to work. I think it's going to work investor, will you give me some money so I can see if it's going to work kind of thing? I mean, that that whole process is, it's not for the faint of heart. And it was, you know, when you have these breakthrough moments, you have visions or you have glimpses of success and glimpses of, okay, this is this is working. We just need to do it a little bit better. And um, and so we did that for like 36 months uh, and and we figured out a process. It's, it's a novel process. So we filed uh, patents at the USPTO. Those are going through the process right now with the examiners and hopefully they award us a patent, which will be Kentucky company's patent on how to fractionate the hemp seed. And so uh, all that to say, what we do is we developed a novel systems process to manufacturing highly valuable award-winning proteins, lipids, and low-calorie sweeteners from the hemp seed that offer food brands and product manufacturers compelling taste, nutrition, and performance advantages, especially for plant-based foods. So that's a little bit of the pitch uh, to our formulators, but it's been working. All these brands that you see up above my head um, you know, are, are, are trialing or using or, or, or using our products, and, and they work in anywhere from meat analog products to dairy analog, baked goods, bars. And, you know, I, I think that like 
there's a little bit of a disconnect in terms of consumer understanding, but the Beyond Meat burgers, the Impossible Foods burgers, those are made from plant-based proteins. And and so what's that substrate? I mean, 70% of what is in that Beyond Meat burger is coming from a plant. Uh, and so hemp seeds have tremendous uh, characteristics that work for yeah. it. That's right. That's right. So maybe we could even take some of your brands there and put them in the podcast show notes for people to kind of dive into more. But sure. I want to talk a little bit about, you You said you did 36 months of, of bench top is what you call it, which I think is a, a good way to describe it. R&D. How do you mm-hmm. convince uh, investors to say, okay, give me your money and let me bench top it for 36 months? Was it an investor? Did you self-invest or um, did you get investors to agree to something like that? Kind of walk us through what the fundraising looked like sure. that pre-36 sure. month to now. Sure. Yeah. Okay. So like early on, it was friends and family. You know, I sold my I sold my condo, put that proceeds of that right into the business. I did a little crowdfund. I got some friends and family money and I spent that money basically figuring out what the hell I was going to do. I bought some wheat, legume, soy processing equipment. i modified it. We got some hemp seeds down from Canada. We threw them in the ground with our farmers up in Newcastle. We got that first harvest in. I processed it on this, on the, on this equipment that I was um, staging at a facility where I was getting free rent. Well, it wasn't free. I'd pay a couple points of equity in Louisville. And then, and then we take that product out to market at the, at the, at the farmer's market, right? Like lowest barrier to entry. So wake up on the weekends and, and, and just do hand-to-hand combat with consumers, which was probably one of the most valuable parts of the life um, cycle of the business. I don't know. They're all super important, but that early place where you're figuring out what consumers liked and what they didn't like about the product, what I learned was people didn't like the protein powder. They just, they were like, this is disgusting and I couldn't sell it, but it was a co-product of the oil, which people did kind of like, right? And they love the hemp part. So I knew that was a winner. So we did that for, for an entire summer, uh, you know, and it was kind of like maybe a break even, maybe losing a little bit money. It wasn't, wasn't moving anywhere, but we found out that in when, so, so at the end of the summer, basically what happened when we did that farmer's market tour uh, or here in Louisville. So we went to every farmer's market we could possibly go to selling, you know, selling, selling eight ounce pouches of hemp parts, oil and protein powder. By the end of the summer, we had to go indoors because it was getting cold. So we uh, got on store shelves at Rainbow Blossom and Good Foods Co-op and then Whole Foods and Kroger picked us up. And so we were making more product. These hemp parts were selling like crazy. And one of the, 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 the things that I noticed was that I had this, this, this section on my cost of goods on my, my P&L piling up, which was from the wasted hemp parts that were part of the, the process of making those hemp parts. It was all the little broken bits. It was like this white powder. And so I was, said, hey, what the heck am I going to do with these? I have to figure out some something to do with these. And so I brought it to a guy in my uh, network who was at the University of Louisville, the Con Center for Renewable Energy, Dr. Jagannath Satyavolu. And I said, hey, do you, do you have any idea of what we could possibly do with this fraction? He figured out that there was a process that he could apply that he applied at Cargill where he he basically fractionated soy proteins. And so he applied that same technology basically to the hemp. We sent those samples out to some food manufacturers and we got just really great feedback. And that was the aha moment of the business where we said, okay, here's what we're going to do with our lives. This is the point of the business. And so that kind of reset the clock. So we raised probably, I don't know, $500,000 in that first tranche to get up to that point, right? And wasn't really sure where we going or what the business model was. There was just a whole period of 
we don't know. We're figuring it out, right? And couldn't really give people forecasts. You'd give forecasts because you'd be asked for them and you just make, you know, you totally make it up. And you go, oh, I think the market's this and we're going to get this because we're going to have the best logo. I'm glad I'm not the and, only one who had to do that. Oh, everyone has to do it. But then when we figured, and when he handed those samples back and he said, this is a protein concentrate and we can make protein isolates, you know, I Googled protein isolate, protein concentrate, and that was like, whoa, that's, that is, that's where we're going. Now that's, that's a horse that can run. So we kind of put a stake in the ground and we said, okay, we can make this, we can make more of it. We have to figure out that process. And we opened up uh, another round of funding, or I think we raised $1.2 million to fund the R&D and try to scale that process. We didn't get far enough with the capital. As I said, we were in the, the lab for 36 months, so we did another convertible note to extend that $1.2. I think we raised another $1.3, and then we've been commercializing the process since. So we've raised a total of $5 million to date. That includes uh, about $60,000 in grant money from four different counties, Henry County, Jefferson County, Fayette County, and Bourbon County. Threw in some money, about $30,000 in the Kentucky Ag Development Fund uh, matched that. And then the Kentucky Ag Development Fund gives a $230,000 loan, uh, low interest loan to to buy some equipment to start uh, manufacturing our product, which we're, we're really grateful for. So yeah, so we're at the at the trough again. You know, I mean, food ingredient manufacturing is kind of a a, a a big boy game. I when I first started, I thought I'd be able to like make it happen with a million bucks. I was like a million dollars. Wow, like I could do anything with a million dollars. And now we're you know we're, we're twenty million. We'll be raising. Yeah, thirty actually. Yeah, <laughs> we're gonna be you know you know we're gonna be opening uh, a, a Series B that's gonna be a capital stack of thirty million dollars next year, and that's still a little bit of a drop in the bucket. If you look at companies like Cargill, right? They just opened up a three hundred fifty million dollar canola processing facility in Saskatchewan, and you know you see those kinds of numbers all over the place. Purist, which is makes pea protein, just opened up a hundred million dollar pea protein manufacturing facility. That's just for the manufacturing facilities that they open up, not including your working capital, your inventory, or R and D costs. You know, genetics program. So all those things are, you know, I mean, we're talking, you know, big stakes, and you know, capital's absolutely fundamental and critical to this whole thing. And you know, every single forecast is a swag, but as you get further down the road. You tighten those swags up. Oh, you actually way. get, yeah, you actually, yeah, you actually get takeoff agreements. You actually get forecasts from customers. You see, you know, because what what they in our space, what they tell us is, you know, great, this is bench top, but we need to see it on a on a pilot. Right? Once you get it to a pilot, yeah, once you get it to pile line, I need to know that you can commercialize it, and then I'll give you a takeoff agreement for a minimum of a million pounds. And you're like, okay, well, you keep, you know, the bar keeps kind of kind of getting raised. Yeah, it's just, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a constant evolution. And I think that, you know, as you guys know, and you talk to 101 entrepreneurs, like this is, it's a game of attrition, right? You're just, you just have to hang in there. There's going to be so many challenges thrown in front of you that you didn't anticipate. And your ability to keep moving forward is directly correlated with your, your ability to succeed. So I've been kind of paying attention to, you know, Beyond Meat and Impossible. And, and, you know, a lot of restaurants are starting to trial, you know, plant-based foods. Uh, is this mostly consumer driven? Is this better for business? What are some of the big drivers here? Is it, talk about all the different drivers that, that are going into this, this movement and you know, how quickly this is happening. Are we, what inning are we in? Oh yeah, that's a great, great question. I love thinking about it in baseball terms. I, I think we're, 
really early innings, right? And I go back to kind of the population explosion conversation, you know, because if you look at 50% of grains that we grow in the U.S. are fed to livestock, right? It's just an absolutely enormous number. The amount of calories that it takes to raise a chicken to maturity, to slaughter, is about 400% food waste. And so what that means is the amount of calories that you put in versus the amount of calories that you get out, there's about 400% food waste in that box because you're raising that chicken and all you're eating is the breast or the leg or the, the wing or the thigh, right? You're not eating the feathers, right? So it's an enormously inefficient process to raise livestock, to feed 50% of our grain, to be in, to go to an incredibly inefficient process, that, uh, product that we eventually consume. And so I think as we look at what the population is going to do, we know the populations as they grow and as they become more affluent, eat more protein. There's no like PR campaign that's reducing the amount of protein that people need or meats that people are consuming. There's no like eat more veggie campaign that's going to find a better balance. People make more money. They're going to eat more hamburgers and hot dogs. It's just been what we've seen over time. So knowing that that's the case, I think that um, thought leaders have done the forecast and there just simply is not enough protein forecasted to keep up with the demand that we're going to face as our population expands. And so for 101 reasons, there's been a ton of money been pouring into the sector to create better tasting, better for you products that consumers can't really differentiate. And there's an enormous level of conscientious consumers out there that are satiated with products that are made using plants that taste 99% of the way there. Now, do I think that we're going to replace ribeyes? I, I think that a ribeye is 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 one of those experiences that that that's just that. It's an experience, right? I want to, you know, I want to cut into a ribeye. But can I cut out the hamburger or can I replace it the 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 beef in the burger with some peas and hemp? Right. That becomes and if it, if it tastes the same and I don't really notice the difference and I'm not paying that much more for it and it's theoretically quote unquote healthier for me and the planet. Well, shoot, I'll just do that because what I really want is is to be satiated. Um, and I think that the plant based products that are coming online right now are in early innings, but they've proven themselves to be clear winners in the palates of consumers. And that's hugely important. And that's the other part of this is that formulators and the bar the brands and the marketers now understand what the game is. They're not guilting people into eating tofurkey burgers. They're not telling people that they have to do their civic duty to save the planet by choking down some dry saute, right? What they're doing is they're creating products that people actually crave, that people actually like. And you'll see Beyond Meat Burgers and on showing up on menus with slabs of bacon on them, right? And it's like, what? That's, that's like, I don't get it, right? But at the same time, they're reducing the consumption and, and what people have come up with is the term flexitarian. So they're reducing their consumption in some part. And so if we can reduce our consumption and increase the supply of these plant-based products, I think we're on the right track. Is to say what inning we're in, I still think it's really early innings. And I think it's just going to continue to ramp exponentially as these products get better. And as we see infrastructure to support these solutions expand across the world. I, I agree that we're in the early innings of it. And I actually think Kentucky um, is in a very good place in the early innings. I think when hemp uh, was legalized in 2014, all the attention kind of went to CBD 
and you're in a, you're in kind of the other side of that. You're in the seed protein, maybe a little different shape of a plant. Can you talk a little bit about kind of what Kentucky's done right, and maybe what the state government's done to to help a business flourish like what you have? Well, let me speak from a policy standpoint. I think what Kentucky's done right is it's been very welcoming and opening to the idea of hemp and reaching back to our roots to be comfortable, to become really comfortable with our historical leadership in growing this crop. I think that that we made a major mistake out of the gate. Unfortunately, we were leaders putting quotas in place. I think uh, quotas are a little bit un-American, it seems to me. Free markets rule the, the the airwaves today. But if you look at how efficient these plants are at producing the micronutrients and molecules that they're being grown for, they quickly overwhelm the supply chain, right? And that's a factor of we're just not consuming that much CBD right now. And so right. that's really where we have that kind of oversupply problem problem crop up. And early on, legislators were sold the hemp plant as being a tremendous solution for automotive industry, industrial applications, technical wovens, non-wovens, food, animal feed, right? All these things. I don't think anyone had the idea that they were going to be driving down the road and, and seeing these plants that look like, you know, marijuana that's grown in the Golden Triangle of Northern California, right? That wasn't something that legislators in Kentucky had had imagined or envisioned. And they also didn't do the fundamental economics associated with, okay, if we grow 75 acres of hemp, where's that going to grow? Where's that going to go? How many acres of hemp do we need to supply, you know, 50% of the population if they uh, uh, adopt that? And so that fundamental math was kind of always missing. And I think that's why we got into a really terrible situation with oversupply it was you know the gold rush happened here and and, and if there wasn't a market to keep up with the, the supply um, and everyone got overextended on on it and and that's really kind of the tail of the tape w when it comes to cbd unfortunately it pulled a lot of energy i think for and an appetite for the other parts of the plant with it down the toilet uh, a lot of people are just said hey you know what hemp it's it's crazy i'm not i'm not interested in anything hemp today farmers got burned they won't touch it again Legend Legislators, you know, went to bat for it. Now they're getting poked in the eye by people who are, are upset about the fact that you can't, you know, that Delta 8 doesn't have better legislation. And they said, hey, we were friends before. And, you know, so it's kind of a messy situation. I think that the future is still very bright for the other parts of the plant. I think more and more businesses are putting resources and energy and effort into valorizing the fiber and the stock, uh, as well as, you know, what we're doing with the seed. I, I do believe that victory is going to have just a tremendous impact in um, the Commonwealth. I think that there's going to be lots of farmers who enjoy contracts with us. We employ 22 people here in the Commonwealth today. Uh, we're, we're hoping to double that next year. So, you know, and keep going from there. So, you know, I think that I think that the history books are going to look back and, you know, notice what this was, which was a little bit of a hiccup. The free market does weed out um, not only bad actors, but inefficient parts of the supply chain. Uh, and that's exactly kind of where we're at. We're in this the, this period of of consolidation. And, and I think that, you know, it's going to be a very different world in two years. But hemp will be uh, a thriving part of the Kentucky economy. And it's important that legislators and advocates and farmers and all the stakeholders in this supply chain don't write it off or put it all into a bucket of failure because one part of the plant gave everyone, you know, 
cause some real headaches. I think that there's still a big future for cannabinoids. I think there's still a big future for safe and transparent supply chains around cannabinoids, as well as uh, the foods produced from the seed and the uh, industrial wovens and, and, and non-wovens that are produced from the hemp uh, fiber. Well, Chad, thanks so much for painting that picture of the future. You know, we always like to end on on that question and you went over it and perfectly okay. looped it into that that last question. Cool. So we we appreciate that. That's what we're trying to do with the podcast is kind of give people a glimpse of the future of, of what's happening here in Kentucky and, and hear from the great entrepreneurs like yourself that are executing on it. So thanks so much for joining. It's been a great conversation. We're looking forward to the the future of the hemp industry. You know, we're excited to hear that we're in the, the early innings and you're bullish on it like you are. And we could be a part of it. So thanks so much for painting that picture for us. Well, thanks for giving the opportunity to. I appreciate it. And before we get off here, can you please uh, plug yourself and, and Victory and let people know that are listening where to find you all? Uh, yeah, I, I think the best way to get a hold of our products is to visit us online, www.victoryhempfoods.com. There's a little shop now button that you can click on and you can purchase any of our uh, high concentrate protein powders, which are tremendous in baked goods. I use up to a 20% substitute on my uh, sourdough recipe in the flour. You can use it for baked goods. You can use it for bars. You can use it in your oatmeal. The hemp hearts are just tremendous in on salads and, and oatmeals as well and your baked goods. And then the oils are tremendous for topical applications as well as salad dressing oils. And so low temperature sauteing. So go pick yourself up some and see what the uh see what the nutrients are all about and how we're bringing it to to pantries across america awesome well i started cooking more during covid so i'm to check that out you're on cool. it awesome well we'll talk to you later chad thanks thanks all right thanks chad. thanks guys